If you've got a Bible, you can grab it. We will be in 1 Samuel, but if you are a guest, again, let me say a special welcome to you. Um, and if I have not had a chance to meet you, I would love that. And if you'd give me that privilege to meet you after the service out by uh, the fireplace, that would be a great gift. Uh, and I would just love the chance to get to know you. Um, but how much of life, like think about your life for just a minute, um, how much of life is predicated on remembering or understanding something? Right? Remembering or understanding something, like pretty much all of life, right? It's predicated on remembering or understanding something. Like if you are a doctor, you better understand anatomy, right? If you are a construction worker, you better understand angles and measurements. If you are a lawyer, and I love some of our lawyer friends, so I'm just going to stop. <laughs> but life is based upon remembering and understanding things. And where we fail to do either one of those things, it can lead to ruin or problems or situations uh, vocationally, uh, relationally, where we fail to remember or understand things. It can lead to uh, problems physically, it can lead to problems spiritually when we fail to understand or remember things. And it was Saul's failure to remember. Really, probably it was his refusal to understand a couple of things that led to his demise as the king of Israel. And so what I want to do with, you know, do with you this morning is I want to, um, as we continue this series through 1 Samuel, I want to show you three major truths that Saul failed to understand and that ultimately led to his demise as a king of Israel, ultimately to his rejection that we will see next week in chapter 15. The three major truths that Saul failed to understand, and I want to implore us to understand these things so that Christ might be exalted and we might have a shot at joy in this life. And so if you have your Bibles, again, we're going to be at 1 Samuel chapter 12. That's on page 233 in the black hardback ones that are around you. Uh, because we're covering such huge chunks of Scripture, you will be greatly helped if you will grab either your own Bible or one of those around you and open it up and follow along. We'll paraphrase part, we'll read part, but I will want to direct your eyes to the text in particular uh, when we're reading it. So do grab a Bible around you, page 233 in the hardback black ones around you. I don't know what page it's on in your Bible, but it's 233 in those and in mine. And so the context here is Saul has become the king of Israel. There's no problem with Israel having a king. You go back into the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you see preparations and rules for a king. So the problem is not in having a king. It's the problem in why they wanted a king and what kind of king they wanted. All right? They wanted a king because they didn't want God. And the kind of king that they wanted was a king like all the other nations. And so in judgment, God gave them exactly what they asked for. They got a king that was like all the kings of the other nations. Saul turned out to be pretty much a terror by the end of his reign. But even in their disobedience and in their rebellion against God in seeking a king, even in that, there's grace. 
And so look at chapter 12, verse 14. What's going on here is the prophet Samuel is kind of giving his farewell address. All right? This is the guy that the book is written for and the guy that really the king has to answer to because he speaks for God. The prophet speaks for God. But even in the midst of once again in his farewell address, calling them out for the rebellion against God and wanting Saul for a king, he says this, verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King. And so verse 14 again, If you'll fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, all right? Like, They've done all this sin. He's saying, if you'll live this way, even in the midst of your sin and rebellion, it will be okay. Like This is something, before we even get into major truths, it just popped off the page at me. That it's such grace here. They've rebelled. They have turned away from God. And Samuel is saying, God is saying through Samuel that even though Saul's kingship is an affront to the Lord, nevertheless, if they will humble themselves before the Lord, turn to Him, seek Him, follow the Lord their God, that the Lord would be gracious to them. It will be well, it says. And so here's what I want you to see. And sometimes... A Christian will do something and then they'll realize that they made an unwise or even sinful decision. But they can't go back on that decision now. Like the Israelites, they can't go back. Like they have their king, they're stuck. There's no going back now. They've got the king. Nevertheless, if they will follow God, it will be well with them. God will be gracious to them. And it's the same in our own lives. Like, yes, you may have made a bad decision on a job change or maybe moving to a different house or moving to a different city or maybe even entered into a foolish marriage. And in some of those situations, you may not be able to reverse those decisions. And so what do you do? Like the Israelites, you're kind of, you're stuck. What do you, what do, you do? You recognize you made a bad choice. Well, you turn to the Lord exactly where you're at. And you seek to follow the Lord your God from here going forward, walking in faithfulness. Richard Phillips puts it this way. There's no situation and no problem in which Christians cannot be blessed by God's mighty help if only we will turn to the Lord in sincere faith, humble ourselves before Him as our Lord and God, and renew our commitment to walk in His Word. This is the all-purpose solution to every problem. And it works because God is so gracious and ready to receive His erring children and to put His blessing upon our heads. Repentance, faith, and new obedience are the way forward for every Christian from wherever we are, good or bad, right at this moment. And so right off the bat, be encouraged by that. Okay, right off the bat, be encouraged by that. And then after performing a miracle, Samuel basically says the same thing again in verse 19. We'll get verses 19 through 25 with me. Kelly just read them, but I want to read them again. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God 
that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Elders, we must pray for the congregation. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. If you do that, you will be overwhelmed. What great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so again, this this is just chock full of good news. The Lord will not forsake His people. He will not forsake His people. For it is pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Praise God for that. That is good news for me. He's not going to forsake us. If you are in Christ, you are His people. He will not forsake you. Over and over the Scripture declares this. And the reason He won't, Okay, what comes right after this statement that the Lord will not forsake His people, the reason He won't is really the central message of Christianity. Well, if you want to know what Christianity is all about, it's about the next statement in verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. In other words, God will glorify Himself. That is what God's central purpose is. To glorify Himself. And so that is what God's central purpose and therefore our central purpose is to be. And this is the first thing that Saul refused to understand or failed to understand. Saul failed to understand, just as so often we do, he failed to understand God's and therefore our own central purpose. And so you want to write that down in number one in your notes. We fail to understand God's and therefore our own central purpose. See, Saul is like so many of us today. Like we don't think that we really exist for God, but that God exists for us. That he is a genie in a bottle, he's a pinata, and if we play the game right, we can do enough things and all his goodies will fall out on us. That's how we treat God. And so blinded by our self-centered culture, the way we frame the world is kind of like that the reason everything exists is so that God might save me, he might rescue me, might ultimately have children like we have children, he wants to see them mature and be safe and chase after their dreams and turn out right. 
That's kind of like what we think God's central purpose and mission is. And to be sure, God is for you. Okay? He wouldn't have sent Jesus to the cross if He wasn't for you. And He does love you. And He does provide for you. He is a shield about you. He's the lifter of your head. But what we've got to understand, and maybe even pop a little bubble in our own minds, is that you and I are not the point. The Bible's not about us. The Bible's about God. Our lives are ultimately not to be about us. They're to be ultimately about God. That's why we were created. All right? There's a reason. But, I mean, He does all these good things for us. He loves us. He's with us. He lifts our head. But the reason He does all those things is for His great name's sake. For, so that He might be worshipped and praised. This is all over the Bible. It's just we're blind to it so often because we make everything about us. I mean, if you go to the most famous passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, Psalm 23, it's there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I mean, this is good stuff that God does. He leads me beside still waters, like even in difficulty. When we walk with God and trust in Him, He's with us in the midst of things, making things, green pastures and still waters, even though we're going through tragedy. He's with us. He restores our soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. These are good things kind things that God does for us. Why does He do all these things? The end of verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And so why does God love you? Why does God pursue you? Why does He shepherd you? Why does He care for you? It's not because of you. It's not because you're awesome. It's because He is, and He's kind, and He's good, and He's gracious, and He does this for the praise of His glorious grace. I mean, you go Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So three times right there, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory. Friends, this is the theme of the Bible, that God exists ultimately for the, to, to, to receive praise, to be worshipped, to be glorified. He is after the praise of his glorious grace. And so the central purpose or the mission of God fundamentally revolves around his glory, not yours. And that's what his mission is all about. It's all about bringing glory to himself. Everything he does, even loving us, is about that. And before you go, how arrogant is that? I mean, aren't we supposed to consider others before ourselves? Yes, humans are. He's God. Right? Like, he is the supreme reality of the universe. There's nothing higher, right? He, he created all things. There's nothing that exists outside of God. And so we, what we are to do is we are to worship and, and, and submit ourselves to the supreme reality of the universe. That is God. And so if God submitted himself to something lesser, that would make him an idolater because he is the supreme reality of the universe. So God needs to be about God. God necessarily has to be about God or he's not supreme. Something else would be. And so God exists for the praise of His glorious grace. And He loves us. Absolutely. This is all over Scripture. He saves us. He's a Father to us. He rewards us. He's returning again. He's going to bring us to Himself into fullness of joy. But all of that finds its root in Him being praised and worshipped and glorified. And so that's why I always say God is always working for His glory and our ultimate good. Our ultimate good. Our ultimate good is His glory. But what I want you to see, we aren't the point. I want us to humble ourselves before God. God's the point. Everything revolves around Him. Everything rolls up to Him. And that's hard for us. Because everything in our culture makes us the point. Everything in our culture says, you're the point. Fulfill everything about you, 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 you. And I'm not quoting that song. But that is how we live. It's about me. I mean, it's the oldest sin in the Bible. You look at Adam and Eve. What did they do? Well, God, I'm more important to me than you are to me, so I'm going to do what I want to do. I mean, I deserve it. I'm entitled to this. Why shouldn't I have this? And we do the same thing. I'm more important to me than God is to me. And I deserve this. This is fine. I'll make my own rules. I'll play by my own rules. I, I deserve this. Life's about me. And that's a lie from hell. 
And so for God's glory and your own shot at actual, lasting, eternal joy, not temporary happiness in this life, in this world, why gain the whole world and lose your soul? As lovingly as I can, I have to tell you that you are not the point. I am not the point. In fact, if we look at it biblically, we're not even in second place. Consider others more important than yourself. So we get the bronze. God, neighbor, us. And so God's mission, His central purpose, is about glorifying Himself. But that is actually for our joy. That actually is for our joy. Because if God is after the praise of His glorious grace, if He wants us to delight in that, praise Him for that, worship for, revel in that, be joyous over that, then that means He can't be after our beat-down, begrudging submission. You will obey. He's after the praise of His glorious grace. Meaning we find our joy in Him. Not in trinkets and toys. But Him. But He's our treasure. He's our joy. He's our satisfaction. And so it's just really practical to talk to, particularly to members of our church, for just a second. If this is the central purpose, not just church members, this is everybody. If this is God's central purpose, then it has to be our own. If this is what God, the supreme reality of the universe, is about, then is that not what we are to be about as well? And so the mission of the church, so here's what we're talking about, the church, must be linked to the mission of God. Or else, what are we doing? What's the point? And so that's why at Providence, our very purpose statement is to worship and enjoy God. And lead others to do the same. See, church member, you are God's messengers. Christians are God's messengers. We are to show the world what God is like. Okay? Newsflash. Non-Christians don't read the Bible. So the only way that some, someone who is not a follower of Christ is going to learn about God and His priorities is by watching the lives of those who bear His name. And so, then we have to ask ourselves this question, what do our lives say about God? What does your life declare about God? Does it declare that God is to be revered and He's glorious? Or does it declare that God is all cotton candy and unicorns and exists as a genie in a bottle to give you, you know, to help you self-actualize your greatest dreams? Is life about you or Him? Does your life declare that God is worth making sacrifices for? Sacrifices in time, sacrifices in money, sacrifices in preferences, sacrifices in where you live. Sacrifices in your standard of living. Standard sacrifices in what you do for a living. Does your, what does your life declare about God? Does it declare that God is worth talking about? Like I said, we are His messengers. We speak with our life, absolutely, is what I'm talking about right now, but we have to open our mouths as well. I think Chad preached a couple weeks ago when I was in Central Asia. There is no plan B. We're his messengers. 
What does your life declare? Does it declare that God is worth obeying? That we trust His ways, not the prevailing popularity of the day. Like we said last week, morality is not based on popularity. It's based on God. It's not based on the president. It's not based on the Supreme Court. It's not based on real or fake news. It's based on God. Does your life declare that? Does it declare that God is worth obeying? And dear friend, if it doesn't, repent today. God will receive you back to himself. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. In verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Friends, understand God's and therefore, and that's possessive, God's and therefore our central purpose is to bring glory to God and live like it. Live for that. Okay, don't be like Saul thinking it's all about you. All right, and so that's the first thing Paul, Saul, Paul, Saul failed to understand. He failed to understand God's and therefore his own central purpose. But the second thing he failed to understand was an outflow of that. All right, is an outflow of that. And that's that Saul failed to understand that being obedient is far more important than winning. Saul failed to understand, number two, that being obedient is far more important than winning. And so what's going on as we come to chapter 13 is you've got the Philistines, all right? And these are folks who are from the region of Greece and Crete, and they've come across the Mediterranean. They've sent, settled in the, um, like the coastal plains of Israel. They control five major cities in that area, Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. They've been a constant threat in the life of Israel through the time of the judges and also through Saul and David. These are the Philistines. And so Jonathan... Saul's son leads an attack and defeats a garrison of the Philistines. And it, like throwing a rock in a hornet's nest, they come unglued and they like amass this huge force to come and destroy Israel. Huge force. To the point that uh, Israel's men are like, they're, 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 they're deserting and they're going and hiding in caves. And they're defecting and going and joining the Philistines because they know they're going to die. Things don't look good. An overwhelming force. All right? Meanwhile, back in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel had said this to Saul. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And so now go to chapter 13, verse 8, and begin reading with me. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. They're deserting, remember? So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. This is the role of a priest, not a king. As soon as he had, 
and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered, mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. He didn't care about the favor of the Lord. This is about him. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart. This is going to be David. We'll meet him in two weeks. And the Lord, and ultimately it's Jesus, because David fails as well. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. Samuel leaves. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And so, verse 9, Saul sinned badly. All right, Samuel had told him, chapter 10, verse 8, wait to, for the sacrifice in Gilgal. But here, 13, verse 9, Saul specifically disobeys God's word. I mean, here he is, he's in Gilgal, he's waited seven days, the enemy surrounded him, things do not look good, the odds are against him, and he starts to panic a little bit. I mean, if he doesn't win this battle, then his country are really, all he's concerned about is his own kingdom it's going to be lost. And so he's got to win. And so Saul caves to the desire to win in opposition to fidelity to God. Saul failed to understand, number two again, like we so often do, that being obedient is far more important than winning. Right? He failed to understand that. Instead, as one guy put it, by his actions, Saul confessed that certain emergencies render Yahweh's word unnecessary. And so what about you? And what about me? Do we do this? When things stack up against us, or they stack up against things that we care about, do we give way to the practical realities and believe the lie that certain emergencies or situations render God's word unnecessary. Your friends, what matters most to God is not success, but obedience. God is not looking for winners. He's looking for disciples. The Bible teaches that obedience matters far more than vocational achievement. And so for those of you who are Christians, you might know, and I'll ask the question, how many of you know Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding? If you're a Christian, have you ever heard that verse? All right, if you're a Christian, yeah, most of you who are Christians in here have heard that verse. Super popular, it's on coffee cups, it's on, you know, memes on Facebook. You're going to see this everywhere. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Saul did not do that. 
And though we love the verse, we so often don't do that. Given the circumstances, it seemed best to Saul, even necessary, to violate the commands of the Lord. But we're called to trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding based upon the circumstances. And this implies in so many areas of our life today, from child raising to dating to marriage to business, politics. Whereas our society encourages independence in children, the Bible commands obedience to parents. Whereas the world applauds sexual indulgence in dating, God requires purity and self-control. Whereas the world commends living together before marriage, the Bible says put a ring on it or get out. Whereas the world lives in business and politics with a win-at-all-costs, as long as you win, it doesn't really matter, mindset, the Bible says that obedience is more important than winning every single time. Because the world's values will very often obviously conflict with the teaching of God's Word. But it's never right to disobey God based upon culturally defined and ever-shifting definitions of what's right and wrong. Again, God's not looking for winners. He's looking for disciples, obedient ones. <clears throat> but not Saul. Saul was a win-at-all-cost, no matter what that means, no matter what I have to violate, even direct commands from Scripture, pragmatist. That's Saul. And so verse 13 again, And Samuel said to him, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commands of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so God does not here reject Saul from being the king, but he does reject a Saul-eyed dynasty. He'll reject Saul next week. And it's all because Saul failed to understand God's and therefore his own central purpose. And he failed to understand that obedience is far more important than winning. But that's not all he failed to understand. He also failed to understand, number three, that it's the Lord who saves. It's the Lord who saves. Not numbers, not might, not circumstances. But it's the Lord who saves. And that brings us to chapter 14. All right? So the Philistines have this huge force, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand on the seashore are set, to, are set to attack. And in the midst of that, we've got Saul's son, Jonathan, who's an amazing guy, very unlike his dad. And in the face of this imminent attack, he decides to do something. Let me read you the story. Verse 1. One day Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison to the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Megrin. The people were there with him, and they were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. Remember, Phinehas is that evil man. So he's gone and got him like a 
like a discount priest, just so we can like play the game. Keeping up the appearance of godliness without the form, without denying the power. He doesn't care. He's just keeping it up. Son of Phidias, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sena. The one crag rose to the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. All right, so you got big mountains, you got big ravines. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. Remember, people are deserting. They're going into the caves. They're used to this. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Literally, we will teach you a lesson. Remember, lots of, descend- no, lots of deserters are out. This is not uncommon. They're defecting to the Philistines. This is happening. So this isn't an uncommon thing for the Philistines. And so Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into, our ha- into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a great panic all right god's at work he's working here and the watchman of saul and gibeah of benjamin looked and behold the multitude was dispersing here and there then saul said to the people who were with him count and see who's gone out from us and when they had counted behold jonathan and his armor bearer were not there so saul said to ahijah bring the ark of god here all right again he's got a trinket he's trying to use this thing doesn't believe in god really but he's going to use god if he can for the ark of god went at that time with the people of israel Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. All right. In other words, stop what you're doing. It's not working. I don't have time for all this. Let's go. Again, disregarding God's law. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites. So the defectors are now coming back. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them. And so the deserters are coming back. Verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And so Saul, he based all his decisions on his, like, what he could see. Or he based all his emotions on his circumstances, on numbers, on probability, on anything and everything but God. But not Jonathan here. 
And Jonathan knows that it's the Lord who ultimately gives salvation, gives victory. And that he can do it with a lot of people or few people. And so he says in verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so notice the balance in this statement of faith here. Jonathan is basically saying that God can do anything he wants. God can do very mighty works with very small resources. And he's also saying God may be glad to do it in this case. But how can we know unless we put ourselves at God's disposal? And so folks, this is something we need to learn. This is faith on display. Jonathan knows there's no limit to what God can do. He may save by many or he may save by few, all right? Completely up to God. But he also doesn't presume on God or try to dictate to God about what he should do. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, some people will say, well, that's not really faith. He's kind of, you know, saying God might do this. I mean, if faith is faith, it must always be certain. It must always be dogmatic. It must always be positive. Let's make sure we don't confuse faith with arrogance. Jonathan's statement here that God might work for them is part of his faith. He confesses the power of God to do it. But he doesn't presume to know the mind of God or dictate to God what he should do. God's God, not him. And so faith, friends, faith, our faith, we have to recognize that we have a degree of ignorance. We do not know We've not been given a decree of what God's going to do in this situation. We have been given a decree of how God will act for his people. And so we need to be careful of just saying, yeah, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do this. That's the whole thing that James gives in James chapter 4. Be careful of saying you're going to do it if the Lord wills. You don't know. And so live with this kind of faith, a faith that Fills the room with excitement because who knows what God might do? Who knows what he's going to do? And I'm not going to presume to know exactly what it is, but, but who knows what he will do because he's a good God with all power and he's always at work for his glory and good. And so who knows what he might do on behalf of his people for his namesake? You never know. But you never know if you don't put yourself out there. And so, friends, don't base your understanding of what God might do just on visible circumstances and numbers and probability. God is all-powerful. Who knows what He might do? And as to this numbers game, as John Knox, the famous and bold Scottish reformer, once said, one man with God is always in the majority. And he works for the good of his people. And so be encouraged. Verse 6, he can save by many or he can save by few, but it is God who saves. And there's one more example I want you to see, and I know we're running a little bit over. It's important for you to understand these stories, not just the messages, because it all builds. And so there's one more thing I want you to see in this text. And it's, it begins in verse 24. <clears throat> Saul makes this ridiculous vow because he's absolutely insane. 
And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. And so notice, this is not about God. This is about Saul, my enemies, until I'm avenged. It's all about his name. He's all about himself. And so he makes this ridiculous vow, even though you guys just were in a huge fight, you can't eat. No eating. We're going to go fight some more with no energy, no eating. Completely insane. Right? Meanwhile, Jonathan doesn't hear this, so he's walking through the forest, he sees some honey, and he eats it. And the Bible talks about how he's revived, and his eyes are glowing, like he has energy, and everyone else is walking around, blood sugar's low, you know, like, he's good, they're not. And Saul, instead of being like, you know what, that was a pretty dumb idea I had, Uh, forget that. No, he says, "Um, nope, Jonathan, you'll die. I'm going to kill you. Because you violated what I said. And so look at verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Look at his, like, boldness. Here I am, I will die. And then Saul said, God do so to me and more. Also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. And then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Who's worked this great salvation in Israel? Like they recognize it was Jonathan who was used of God, not Saul. And they're like, No, this isn't happening. Far from it. As the Lord lives, this is the people talking to their king. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And here's the last thing I want you to see. Jonathan didn't deserve to die. But we do. We do deserve to be judged. We're like Saul in this story, not Jonathan. We do deserve to be judged. We do deserve to be punished for our sins. But God has sent Christ to ransom us so that we don't have to. He came and lived perfectly in our place. He died on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay for our rebellion, to pay for how we seek other kings, for how we you know, focus on winning versus obedience, for how we live for ourselves and not for God. Jesus came and he lived perfectly. He never did any of that. And through faith in him, all of that will be credited to us. All of our sin goes over to Jesus and he pays for it on the cross. And it's gone as far as the east is from the west. It's the Lord who saves, practically and supernaturally, spiritually. And so, friend, without Christ, turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Christian, turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Confess them, repent of them, turn from them, and begin following Christ today, right where you're at. As we said in the beginning, there's no situation and no problem in which Christians cannot be blessed by God's mighty help if only we will turn to the Lord in sincere faith, humble ourselves before Him as our Lord and God, and renew our commitment to walk in His Word. And so, dear friends, let's do that. And part of that is learning to understand what Saul failed to understand. 
that God and our central purpose is to glorify God. And that obedience is always more important than winning. And that it's the Lord who saves. Not circumstances, not feeble attempts to control things, but God in His mercy. So may we learn and live these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are gracious and that You do receive us back to Yourself. That You have determined to mark out a people for Your own possession. And that You will not forsake us. Father, humble us and help us to see that we're not the point, though. You are. Everything that comes to us is for the praise of your glorious grace, but that also means it's for our joy. And we don't have to be begrudging submitters. We find our delight in you. I thank you that you're with us. Help us to be obedient and help us to be repenters. Help us to recognize our sinful tendencies. And not excuse them, but to confess them and walk in freedom because Christ has ransomed us. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen.